Welcome to Folk and Beyond with Air Stephen for a journey into contemporary folk music from all over the planet. All right, Bill Dunlop is in the studio, and we're going to be talking about this event that's going to be going on tomorrow uh, with uh, Pat Oliphant and P.J. O'Rourke and Bill Dunlop, actually William Dunlop Esquire, the artist. I guess he goes by William Dunlop uh, on, on all of his work and books, but uh, he's Bill to me. So anyway, to introduce Bill, I brought Bill's name up during a conversation with Dr. John back in 1996, and I'm going to run an excerpt of that, and then we'll be back and live with William Dunlop in the studio. Send Yep, she's rolling any time, and we'll just edit it later. Yeah, you're right. This is a night trip with Dr. John. You done edited another... Where? Oh, I'm sorry. I... Okay, here, take two over <laughs> Dubbe. Doing good already. Hey, now, this is the night trip with Dr. Di... Well, let me say that. I'll say that, so don't start take off. Take it, Jason. <laughs> we got all kinds of tape. Two hours worth. No, we no. We got more tape than you got time. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. This is Dr. Joan and Night Tripper. You done entered the delicate balance of the Nutter Zone. Right here on 91.1 FM, the sound choice of Central Virginia, WTJU Charlottesville. Ask me something and we'll do it because when I hear my band start coming in, uh, my nerves will be relieved and I'm going to split. Okay. This is Air Steven with The Night Tripper, Dr. John, here backstage at Wolf Trap just before Dr. John's going to get ready to go out and rip it up out there. And it's so nice to have you here with us, Dr. John, and thanks so much for taking the time out. Well, I'm glad to be here, Air Steven. You know, I'm an airhead, people tell me, so we have something <laughs> in common. <laughs> Well, I was really interested in some of the things you've been doing, and, and it seems like you're taking your music into another dimension these days as you're adding a lot of players that you haven't played with before. I do different stuff, you know, like tomorrow uh, tomorrow morning we're starting a uh, tribute to Duke Ellington record. That's going to be one kind of record. In August, we're going to do another record that's going to be a whole article more like what you're talking about mm -hmm. in some way. Won't be like that one, but it'll be something different. So that's what life's about. Little change here, meet new folks, keep things. And life is about just if you ain't growing, you ain't going. And if you ain't doing something, then what are you doing? I mean, what are you here for? If you ain't trying to do something else, then uh, you might as well go out there and sell shoes rather than play music or something. <laughs> and if you ain't, you know, it's about, uh, you know, look, it's, it's a simple maneuver. Sometimes you lame out, but you try to do something different. And uh, sometimes it's successful, and who knows when that is sometimes. 
I'm tired, you know. The most successful thing you do don't be no hit record or something. It just be something that make you feel good. The most rewarding doesn't necessarily That's hit the right. masses. That's correct. A good friend of mine, Bill Dunlop, an artist, told me that there's only one thing in life there's no excuse for, and that's being dull. Hey, if you <laughs> if you dull, that mean you didn't sharpen up, you, you didn't take your razor strap, you, know, you didn't take your little, and wet your, your stone and get your blade tightened up. And you get out there and you try to clean and gut some fishes or some ducks or something, and it ain't sharp and it ain't working, or you try to shave with a dull blade. When you got all them nicks and bleeding all over the place, you ain't got nobody to blame but yourself. You gotta take care of business, but it's like orders and priorities to business if you don't be doing that. I mean, uh, you ain't hurting nobody but yourself. That's right. But that creative line needs to keep, to keep a little bit of motion behind it, a little bit of energy, a little bit of effort. Creation comes true. Musicians always believe that. Art Blakey said that the best, however he said it, and I don't remember what he said, but I knew that he always meant it. We was the vehicles, and the music just kind of swang through us, and I liked that. I believed that. and uh, But I always thought that even before he said it, however eloquently he spoke those words, whatever they was. But the fact is, uh, you know, I think if we block it, uh, guys can think so much about, well, I'm going to do this or that or the other thing. And uh, they block whatever the natural things that could happen if we just be loose to try some. Some nice things can happen, but you got to be, you know, just like your boy Dunlop said, man, you know, you can't, you, 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 it's just like, if you just do, if, if it's some whole hum stuff you've done, you ain't got nobody else to blame. You cannot point the finger there because you got four of them pointing back or three of them pointing back, whatever it is. <laughs> How many you don't have chopped up? Well, some people might have four, but I pretend. Well, you got to stay open because lightning could strike at any point. Adjust that a little bit there. Yeah, I, lightning struck my catahoula hound. And uh, it didn't help that dog. Never met my wife, you ain't never seen her before. Say you ain't been hanging around my crib. Well, here's something I wanna know. I wanna know what in the world is going down. How come my dog don't bark when you come around? I got the baddest dog, he'll bite anybody. He been my little brother, took a chunk out of my old sweet little mother. He been the mailman, he sees him every day. Takes one look at you, he wanna jump up and play. Now I ain't got a clue as to what you putting down, but how come my dog don't bark when you come around? My dog is dangerous, try to set people straight. Even bought a bad dog sign and hung it on the gate. Here you come tripping about a quarter to nine, full of that night train wine, trying to slide. 
Dr. John, the Night Tripper, and who I had brought up during that conversation was Bill Dunlap, who I welcome to the WTJU Air Studio right now. How are you doing, Bill? I'm well. I'm well. It's great to hear that piece. You told me about it, but Mac Rabinac's too much. Great influence on any creative artist in America. He sure is. He's from down in your neck of the woods. I guess Mississippi isn't Louisiana. Oh, man. Why why do you think it's tall like that? What makes him do that? (laughs) That's a bit of that Creole patois. Well, you know, growing up in Mississippi in the 60s, the Baptists were in total control, and you weren't allowed to sin in state. You had to go out of state to sin. So uh, in 1962, 70 members of my senior class and I got on a bus in late April and went to New Orleans on a senior trip. You don't want to go to Arkansas and Tennessee and Alabama to sin when New Orleans is so close. That's the worm turned for me on that trip, and I've been going back steady ever since. You know, I love that place. Yeah, and it needs a little bit of help. Still needs help. Don't forget about that, people, that uh, our Bush administration didn't finish down there in Louisiana and Mississippi 
And it still needs a lot of help as we honor that every year at the time, but you should honor it all the time. But, you know, it's artists and culture that are bringing the place back. The artists keep going back. I'm on the board of a museum down there, the Ogden Museum of Southern Art, and they were the first institution to open on Thursday after the storm, you know, the previous week. And they have these music events every Thursday night, you know, and Thursday nights at the O. And I asked the director, I said, who the hell's going to come? He said, we open the doors and they show up. It never fails. And they've been leading everybody else, all the other cultural institutions. Musicians are coming back. The visual artists are back. The poets are working on the street and uh, it ain't as dangerous as the news media would make it out to be it's a great wonderful american city any month out of the year you ought to go there take out your credit card and don't put it up until you leave good advice from bill dunlop <laughs> bill what brings you to town well, I, I live up in McLean half the year, and any excuse to come down 29 and see that glorious landscape is a good one. But I'm down here with my buddy Pat Oliphant, who's got this extraordinary exhibition over at the University Museum, the Old Bailey Building. And um, it's, it's a show that's been traveling around. I saw it in Washington, and it's been on the road. But it's called Leadership, Oliphant Cartoons and Sculpture from the Bush Years. Now, you know Pat Oliphant whether you think you know him or not. He's the most important syndicated uh, cartoonist in the country. And I've seen him in newspapers yeah. since I was a kid. He won a Pulitzer Prize. He's a, he's a native of Australia, and Bush tried to get him deported, oh, I, I think. That. But, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's Australian, so he sees us clearly in ways that other people don't. It's a hell of a damn show. And Pat and I are doing a little song and dance, uh, doing our little two-person uh, minstrel show tomorrow night at the uh, small special collections library at 530. You need to make a phone call to get in that thing, but it is open to the public. And I'm told the number to call is 434-243-1776. That's 1776. And they'll tell you how to weasel your way in. And interestingly enough, P.J. O'Rourke, who's another great friend of Pat's, is coming down and he'll, he'll be whining, moaning, complaining about the new administration, I'm sure, which is his want. P.J. O'Rourke is an interesting chap because he was a uh he was editor-in-chief of National Lampoon and a yeah. Rolling Stone correspondent. He should know how, better. How did yeah. he end up on the other side of the fence? He made a little money, I'm afraid. <laughs> now <laughs> he has do to it protect it. Yes, right. Is that it? It'll do it every time. Well, but, you know, let me throw something out here. People may be interested, and they may not, but I haven't seen you for 30 years. We were all ensconced in the mountains of North Carolina together in the 70s, and I think the last time I saw you, you were folding up your kite after having flown from Grandfather Mountain and, and worked those damn uh, thermals up there for about two or three hours, and you landed in the parking lot of Holly's Tavern, rolled up your kite, and went in and had a beer. It's pretty I impressive. I did. That was a great flight. <laughs> I wish I could have made it further, but I looked down at the... Uh, down the ravine that headed down toward Morganton, and there was no place to land for 20 miles, and I figured a beer was better than the trees at that point. Man, those were <laughs> extraordinary times, and the further I get away from them, the more interesting and compelling, and almost like poetry they become, you know. And you were an instructor down there at Appalachian State at the time. Oh, I was, I was coaching art. You can't really teach it. You can only coach it. But that's what got me out of the swamps of Mississippi. I was telling somebody the other night, I got out of Ole Miss in 69, and I came to the mountains of North Carolina like a feral animal with an MFA. And the good folks of the mountains uh, took the thorn from my paw, and I've been devoted to them ever since. I still got a summer place down there. I go back whenever I can. Are you continuing with your advocacy of art all over the country? And, and our, I know that you're a great spokesman for the, the arts and to get funding from political avenues. Is, is that well, it's what I do. I mean, you, 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 I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a painter. That's, that's what I do. And, and I, I see so damn much talent around and so little attention paid to it. And, and I'm not necessarily saying government ought to be writing a check to everybody, but I don't know, may not know what the question is, but I know the answer is art. It's, the answer is culture. I, quite frankly, would like to see our artists and our poets and musicians militarized you know, weaponize us, send us out into the world, deploy us like soldiers, let us spread culture rather than pain and misery, and we'll make a lot more friends and there'll be a lot fewer casualties. I have, a, I have a great sort of feel for that kind of thing, and it used to happen on the government's part. The old United States Information Agency, uh, after the Cold War, was the sharpest tool we had in our, in our box 
to sort of get the story of America out, and they cashed it in. Jesse Helms and his people took it away in a, in a, in a, in a little property fight there at the State Department. So that's gone, and now we, we, it's up to Hollywood, you know, and, and, and BET to send out the message of America to the rest of the world, and it's not always what I think it ought to be. A lot of times it's cloaked with a big business no matter what when it comes from Hollywood or yeah. when it comes oh, from... Oh, it's market-driven, no question. And the market has many charms. I've, I've done well by the market, but uh, farsightedness is not one of them. How can we get more money into that? How can we activate it again? I guess we've got a new administration that might be more listenable. Well, you know, the, the visual artists in America have never really recovered from the Great Depression of the 30s. So, I mean, it came and went and nobody noticed in the art world. A handful of people get really dirty rich on it. But for the most part, artists will work two or three jobs just to support their habit of making art. And they sell their soul to the devil all day and try to buy it back at night in the studio. And so we're used to, to that. We're comfortable with it. I just think you have to brighten the corner where you are. I mean, if you're in a town like Charlottesville, there are artists all around. The university produces them. They move here because it's a great place to be. Look around. Find one. Spend some money on him. You know, just, just that's what a money does for an artist. It buys him time to do his product, to write his music, to write his poetry, to make his paintings. Money equals time for the artist. It's a very simple equation. This book that you gave me called Dunlap, Amazing book. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, I've seen some of your work, but paging through that before the show here, uh, I felt like, God, I, I should have treated you with more respect all my life. <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily. No, that, that thing came about. Uh, the University Press of Mississippi is one of the more respected university presses, and the, the director there was a friend of mine, and I was whining and complaining a few years ago about how they did so few art books. I mean, all you've got to do to be a Southern writer is change planes in Atlanta, you know, and you get published, it seems like. And she said, okay, Bill, we'll do one on you. I said, no, that wasn't my point. That wasn't the point. So we fussed and fought for a while, and I let them do the book, and I just worked on color corrections and fact corrections. I, I was very uncomfortable with the title, Dunlap. I, I wanted something like the greatest story ever told, but that's been, <laughs> that's been taken. But I'm tickled with it. It's a, it's a, it's a nice tome. Well, it's a wonderful book. Is it something that they can get over there at the gallery during your show? Uh, you know, my show's not here. I, I was in an exhibition here back in the, back in the when was it, last spring, that uh, Landscape of Slavery exhibition. But the truth of the matter is, you can get it from the University Press of Mississippi or you can get it from Amazon.com. You know, it's just Dunlap. It's real easy. It's uh, the, like the golf ball and the tire with an A rather than an O. And uh, I can't buy them that cheap. And it's an interesting book, a little bit of a narrative about the time we were all in the North Carolina together and, uh, you know, then the whole rock and roll days in Mississippi. And it's not been an uninteresting life that I've been privileged to live. Speaking of rock and roll, the Alabaster Phantoms you told me about, and I went and uh, <laughs> YouTube them, and uh, there's a young Maggie Dunlap leading the vocal there. It's like a little Debbie Harry. It's outrageous, isn't it, what your children do? And you were 51 when she was born. I got into the baby business a little late. I thought I was going to dodge that bullet, but uh, she slipped into our lives. Uh, Linda Burgess and I got married. I think you remember Linda from I the do. mountains. And, um, and the, the, she's an extraordinary child. And, you know, I sent myself to college kicking a big R&B band in Mississippi and doing some studio work. And the way we put bands together, we went to bars and found players. We sat in with people. We never practiced. We just played. And we did it for the money. And Maggie's involved in a really interesting program in Washington, Washington called Bach to Rock. It's B-A-C-H to Rock. They give private lessons, got these great teachers and studios with recording equipment that's just extraordinary. And when you reach a certain point in your private lessons, they put you together with other musicians 
And once a year, they have a Battle of the Bands on a Sunday at the 930 Club, which is a very hip stage to work on. Yeah, the 930 Club's very famous. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and, and so Maggie went to it last December and saw it, then got herself all excited about it and put some of her buddies together. And they cover some uh, they cover some Paramore tunes and do a real good job, and they're writing their own, own material now. And it's not a bad way to get into rock and roll if you can just get out alive. That's are, the main are thing. Are these tunes that they did there, were they original tunes that they wrote themselves? No, they were covers. They were covers. The next material is going to be... Uh, going to be original i think well let's hear that right now here on folk and beyond this is maggie dunlop in her, in the band alabaster phantoms at the 930 club in washington dc on uh, december 7th of this last year pearl harbor day and this is famous last words
11 to 13 year olds in the Alabaster Phantoms at the Battle of the Bands at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., uh, part of the Bach to Rock program. It's worth Googling to find out what they do. It's a brilliant, brilliant concept. We have in Charlottesville a thing called the Music Resource Center that yeah. Dave yeah. Matthews helped start, and Bruce Hornsby, John Hornsby. I think it's John Hornsby, mostly Bruce's brother. But it's really taken off, and they ended up buying the old church even, and it's right mm-hmm. downtown on a corner, and great for the youth. So let's get back to the exhibition and the uh, conversation with Patrick Oliphant, P.J. O'Rourke, and William Dunlap tomorrow at the Harrison Institute Auditorium of the Small Special Collections Library. And that building, for all you folks, if you know where Peabody Hall is and you know where the Alderman Library was, and you might have remembered a year or so ago, maybe it was two years ago now, that they had it kind of blocked off, that's the new building they built in between the Alderman Library and Peabody Hall. And that's where you can find it. And uh, a little bit of a different type of admission then, Bill? Let's well, go over Well, I think it is. Time. Let me t- say something about Patrick and his, and his ability to draw. What he'll do tomorrow night is draw, and PJ and I will uh, uh, damn him with faint praise. And they'll project his drawings. You get to see this marvelous <laughs> hand of his work. Pat is, is, is you can draw a straight line from the cave painters in Lasco to Pat Oliphant. I mean, it's, that's basically what human beings do. We tell stories, implied narrative through drawing. And he's brilliant at it. And the eight years of the Bush administration have been wonderful for all cartoonists, but especially for, for, for Pat, with this cynical kind of approach to everything. This has been a target-rich environment. I'm really worried for a couple of reasons for cartoonists. What's going to happen when newspapers go away and when you have an administration that everybody pretty much likes? It's going to be hard for them to find a, a Dick Cheney in this crowd for a while, but I think they'll probably figure that out. But, I mean, everything that you remember about the last eight years shows up in his drawings at some point or the other. And they're risky and they're edgy and they're shown next to some uh, uh, works from the University Museum's collection, especially, especially some Damier uh, images there. That are, that Damier is really one of, uh, of the 19th century um, uh, French uh, uh, artists, Henri Damier, who was such a, he's the god of all political cartoons, a big influence on Pat Oliphant. So you see these things together in an academic context, and you live the eight years, and uh, you know, if you were only 12 when Bush first came into office, you remember how tortured this old damn period of time has been, and Patrick nails it down. He really, really does. Damier, did, did he ever live in the United States? Or no, just never. Drew? Totally, totally uh, the French Republic. And he, and he, and he with, when Napoleon came in, and of course, and oh, it's gave a long them, time gave them, gave them freedom of the, of the, of the, of, of the press. They exercised it, and, he, and his, his wit was biting. And everyone tries to come up to, uh, to the Damier uh, level. I mean, he worked these guys over, and that's kind of what they, the price they pay for being in the public light. It seems to me. But uh, the show's there till March the 8th. If you don't make the event tomorrow night, it matters very little uh, unless you just want to see a, a brilliant artist draw. But the exhibition's there, and it's worth spending some time in. I, I was on campus a, a while back, and I asked about a half a dozen students where the museum was, and nobody knew. So I hope that that will change. I mean, my God, man, why come to a university and, and not have a universal experience that includes the visual arts? So. This is the place that you're talking about where the actual exhibition is right now, not yeah, where he's going to talk. I think that's because you, uh, the, it's recently, is it still called the Bailey? No, it's the University Museums in the exactly. Bailey Building. Yeah, yeah. And, and we used to know it as the Bailey Art Gallery, and uh, that even was what was confusing me as I talked to you about it. And I was thinking, well, the White Room at the University of Virginia Art Museum. So everybody that knows where the Bailey was, it stills there, 
and that's the name of it now. And you went over there today. We walked through it together. I, I did. Mean, and what's interesting about this is you see the finished cartoons, and you see the working drawings up right beneath them. Pat, like any good reporter, walks around with a small you know, pad of paper, and he makes drawings and sketches when they occur to him, you know, at lunch, on a napkin, you know, or on a plane, or on a train, and then those, they turn into his drawings. And whenever the muse hits him, that's when he draws, uh, draws it out and takes it a little bit further. And then they turn into sculpture. There's some wonderful bronze casts of uh, George Bush and Greenspan and all the characters that have made our life so rich and wonderful for the last decade or so. It's something you just don't want to miss. Yeah, I was really amazed by it. And some of the big pieces, I mean, you're used to seeing them in a size that is more of a sketch or even perhaps 8 by 10, but he's got yeah, some pieces yeah. over there that are, I don't know, 3 feet by 8 feet. And some almost life scale. Well, that's one of the things that really kind of works. And, and the way, you know, Patrick is the kind of cartoonist who dreams them up, executes them, and he inks them himself. It's not unusual. Uh, all the old mad magazines of our youth were inked by someone other than the artist who gets credit for it. Gary Trudeau doesn't really ink uh, his, 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 uh, his cartoons. Oliphant does. He just, just cares to. He just wants to do it. He's a craftsman and an artist at the same time. And there's a great deal of artistry in what he does. And it's uh, worth paying some homage to. That's very interesting. I guess then they must be able to get to look at the completed project before it actually goes out to press. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, he doesn't really have to live in Washington anymore. He's syndicated in over 500 papers. He and his wife Susan live in Santa Fe. And, uh, and so he can make the drawings from watching C-SPAN or, or, you know, picking up magazines and sort of do his caricatures from that and then scan them and, 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 and send them digitally to the, to the newspapers. And it's, uh, so he's in the high-tech world as well. He's still dealing with the equivalent of a broken stick and mud, but uh, he draws these damn things and, uh, and scans them and sends them away and starts on the one for the next week. It's an interesting angle that that comes from, and, and how would you end up with a mentorship or with an apprentice in something like that. <laughs> well, Santa Fe is a pretty hot uh, art community. And, yeah. and, it, and he, we went out to, we were over the Ruffin building today and went into a printmaking class and he made a drawing and I made a drawing and they printed them right on the spot for us. Dean, the print uh, instructor over there, his first rate guide, worked at, at Tamarind. And so I got to see that new art building, which is very impressive here at this campus. You know, they've got a, y'all got it going on down here. So I was, I was charmed to be a part of that. Where can we see some of your work? Exhibited. Oh, good Lord, man. I've had a in big collection. I've had a big, big year. I uh, had a show in New Orleans and one in Oxford, Mississippi. And, and I won't blow the family's horn too much. My wife's a much better artist than I am. So Maggie uh, illustrated a book a few years ago. So the three of us had a show that made sense. That was kind of fun to do. But uh, I've got one of those overawed websites, actually. Uh, one of my former students at Appalachian State put together a big old nasty website for me. It's William Dunlap, not, not Bill Dunlap. It turns out there's another artist named Bill Dunlap. who uh, That does art as well. Yeah, and he lives in San Francisco, and he sends me people that are looking for him, and I send him people that are looking <laughs> for me. But it's just WilliamDunlap.com. You know, tell you more than you ever wanted to know. And I know that you also have up at the Corcoran Gallery. Yeah. Did yeah, I say that right? yeah. yeah. You have a, a one that's there all the time. What do they call that? A resident? No, I actually made that panorama of the American landscape for the Corcoran, but it's been traveling, interestingly oh, enough. I did that back in the 80s, and it's been to about 30 different venues, and now my home Mississippi Museum has acquired it. It's its own permanent display in Jackson, Mississippi, at the Mississippi Museum of Art. And it's kind of a big cyclorama about the, about the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Battle of Antietam and various and sundry things like that. It's a very allegorical piece, but it's in the book and on the website, and uh, so it's full of dogs and horses and snow and severed deer heads and all the things that make art a happy experience. As you can tell, William Dunlap is very articulate and a lot of fun. And you can see him in person with Pat Oliphant and P.J. O'Rourke tomorrow evening 
at the Harrison Institute Auditorium of the Small Special Collections Library. Again, that building is between Peabody Hall and Alderman uh, Library. And I'm going to have Bill give you the phone number one more time so that you know. Yeah, I don't know why this is necessary, but I, I think you need to be proactive and try to work your way into this thing. Call 434-243-1776 for the minute library of the tiniest collection of the library at the University of Virginia. And come see us. Check this thing out because I think it's going to be worth it. Bill, it's been a real pleasure it's to have you It's great to see you again. Show. It means a lot. It really does. And I can't wait to see this event happening tomorrow. It should be very intelligent and stimulate a lot of humor. Oh, I wouldn't count on that, man. <laughs> Alcohol will be involved. I can assure you. Here's a man that often talks tongue-in-cheek. In this last song, we talked a little bit about how we need to have the militia of artists. Uh, well, maybe it's the parents. Maybe the parenting needs to be a little bit different. And this is Randy Newman off of his new CD, Harps and Angels and... Korean parents on folk and beyond. Kids today got problems like their parents never had. Neighborhoods are dangerous. The public schools are bad. Home now distractions so irresistible. The hours fly by. No work is done Some Jewish kids still trying Some white kids trying to Millions of real American kids Don't have a clue Right here on the lot We got the answer Product guaranteed And satisfied
Folk and Beyond with Air Stephen for a journey into contemporary folk music from all over the planet.